Section 19 of Hildebrand and His Times by William Richard Ward Stevens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13. The Struggle in Germany Between Henry and Rudolf. Death of Rudolf. Wiebert, Archbishop of Ravenna, elected antipope. Henry crowned by the antipope in Rome. Rome occupied by Robert Guiscard. Sack of Rome death of gregory estimate of his character and work death of robert guiscard ten seventy seven to eighty five part two at last robert guiscard found it to be his interest to befriend the pope rebellion had broken out in apulia fomented by the eastern emperor alexius who urged henry to support it sent him supplies of money to help him against rome and sought the hand of henry's daughter agnes for his own nephew and probable successor early in february henry made an incursion into apulia with part of his army meeting little resistance in march he was again in rome and on the twenty first accompanied by his wife the anti-pope and a large number of german and italian bishops and nobles he took possession of the lateran palace here a synod was held which deposed and excommunicated gregory on palm sunday wibert was consecrated with the title of clement the third and on easter day march thirty first ten eighty four he crowned henry and his wife in the church of st peter in both ceremonials precedents were followed as far as circumstances permitted but the gregorians maintained that the whole proceedings were irregular and therefore invalid Wibert was consecrated by the excommunicated bishops of Modena and Arezzo. No blessing could be conveyed by their hands, and as Wibert was not pope, Henry, crowned by his hands, was not emperor. Henry and his pope were masters of nearly all Rome, but it was a brief and sorry triumph. The alliance of Henry with the eastern emperor and his attack upon Apulia had thoroughly exasperated Robert Guiscard, and he now resolved to seize Rome. Leaving his army at Durazzo under the command of his son, Bohemond, he crossed to Italy and collected a motley force made up of Normans, Lombards, Apulians, and Saracens, amounting to 30,000 foot and 6,000 horse, with which early in May he advanced upon Rome. Henry was not prepared to face such a host under such a leader, and promising to return ere long with rich rewards for the valiant, he quitted the city, May 21st, and hastened through Verona to Germany. On May 27th, 1084, Robert arrived before Rome, and encamped by the aqueduct of Nero before St. John's Gate early next morning some friends inside rome secretly opened the pincian and flaminian gates the troops rushed in poured in a mighty torrent over the campus martius shouting guiscard guiscard and having crossed st peter's bridge speedily captured the castle of st angelo from which gregory was conducted to the lateran palace rome now lay at the mercy of the conquerors naturally in such a large mixed host many of the soldiers were ferocious and insolent scuffles broke out between them and the citizens in one of which a norman vassal of robert's was killed robert permitted if he did not order the fearful vengeance which ensued 
the city was abandoned to fire and pillage the people to slaughter and outrage some of the principal churches were spared at the intercession of gregory but he had the mortification of seeing half the city reduced to ruins and thousands of the inhabitants carried away as captives the miserable remnant cursed the pope and his deliverer and in the words of a contemporary anarchist the cruelty of the normans gained more hearts for the emperor than one hundred thousand gold pieces about the end of june robert prepared to move southwards with the bulk of his army gregory had to be content with a vague promise of indemnity for the injuries inflicted upon the city which he now quitted never to return accompanied by some cardinals and a few roman nobles he was conducted first to monte cassino where they were received with much honour by desiderius the abbot thence he proceeded to benevento and finally to salerno the anti-pope clement who had retired to tivoli now came back to rome celebrated christmas there and gathered a little court around him of such bishops clergy and nobles as were hostile to gregory but he was of small account without the emperor and henry having got his crown had no mind to return to rome to reign in rome indeed could have been but little joy for either emperor or pope the most renowned and revered city in the world was a miserable ghost of her former self more than ten years after the catastrophe it is described by one who visited it as a scene of melancholy desolation towers and castles standing out gaunt and grim amidst the wreck of palaces and churches while those churches which still remained were surrounded with such high strong walls that they looked more like fortresses than christian temples rome lay in ruins and the pope was an exile his bodily powers were beginning to decay but his spirit remained unshaken to the last he was as imperious at salerno as at rome as confident in the justice and ultimate triumph of his cause a synod was held in which he hurled anathemas once more at henry and Wibert. legates were sent to germany and france to stir up the courage of his adherents and bearing with them a circular letter addressed to the faithful in which they were commanded as they valued their salvation to hasten to the rescue of the holy roman church the mother and mistress of all churches the legates were also to remind them of the annual tribute which had been regularly paid to rome in the days of charles the great in fact they were to try and muster an army and levy a subsidy from christendom but they met with scanty success and the only resources upon which gregory could rely were those of matilda and the normans in july ten eighty four the troops of the countess had surprised and defeated a force raised by henry in lombardy on its way to aid the anti-pope at rome if gregory could have returned to the city immediately after this victory he might have been reinstated but robert guiscard was on the other side of the adriatic busy again with his eastern projects and preparing to winter in epirus it was clear that gregory would not be conducted back to rome by the normans and in the spring of the following year it was equally clear that his end was not far off on may eighteenth ten eighty five he summoned the little band of cardinals who had followed him into exile 
and told them he had but eight days to live. In reviewing the course of his eventful life, he said that he had only one supreme consolation, the consciousness that he had at least loved right and hated wrong, and raising his eyes to heaven he bade his friends dismiss their fears concerning what should befall them when he was gone, seeing he was about to depart to the other world, where with fervent prayer he would commend their cause to God. They then asked him to intimate his wishes respecting the election of his successor. He named Desiderius, abbot of Monte Cassino, Anselm, bishop of Lucca, Otto, bishop of Ostia, and Hugh, archbishop of Lyon, as the worthiest men, suggesting a certain preference for Desiderius as being nearest at hand. They questioned him concerning the absolution of the excommunicated. Henry and Wiebert, he replied, with all who by counsel indeed have supported their impious designs, I absolve not. All others I freely bless who hold fast the belief that I exercise this power as the representative of St. Peter and St. Paul. On the 25th, the great Pope was no more. Just before breathing his last, he repeated the words, I have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. Nay, said one of the bishops, in exile thou canst not die, who, as vicar of Christ and his apostles, hast received the nations for thine inheritance, and the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. He was buried at Salerno in the church of St. Matthew, which he had consecrated to receive the remains, recently discovered, as it was supposed, of the evangelist. Two hundred years afterwards a sumptuous chapel was built over the grave where the remains rested, until they were translated by Pope Paul V in 1609 to a spot beneath the high altar. His name was inserted in the calendar in 1584 by Gregory Thirteenth, and from that time his day began to be publicly celebrated at Salerno. But Benedict Thirteenth in 1728 was the first pope who ordered it to be generally observed. The last words of Gregory, I have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, were no more than the truth. He had no selfish or sordid aims. The moral purification of the church, its organization as a great spiritual empire under one supreme head, and its emancipation for this purpose from all secular control. This was the ideal for which he lived. The dying words of one of our own archbishops, Pro Ecclesia Dei, Pro Ecclesia Dei, might well stand as the motto of Gregory's life. The victories of the church were his joys, her defeats his sorrows, the papal claims, as he is supposed to have conceived them, are formulated in a document preserved among his letters. Whether it was really framed in his time or under his direction may be a matter of doubt, but at least it contains little or nothing which is not involved in the principles which he actually maintained. The digest consists of twenty-seven brief propositions, asserting, amongst other rights, that the Pope alone is the universal pontiff, he is the supreme and irresponsible arbiter in all questions of right and wrong. He alone can depose and reinstate bishops, and of all bishops his legates take precedence. He only can wear the imperial insignia. He alone can depose emperors and absolve subjects from their allegiance to wicked sovereigns. All princes must kiss his feet. 
it is easy for us looking at them in the light of later history to denounce these claims as extravagant and mischievous but as things then were the absolute independence of the church from all secular control seemed to many besides gregory essential to her purification and indeed her existence as a spiritual power the conflict between the church and the world in that age meant a struggle to determine whether the feudal or ecclesiastical the military or the religious should be the dominant force in european society the issue was put on the strife about investiture the feudal aristocracy were too often fierce insolent licentious and if prelates were to be placed under the heels of such men it was impossible that they should do their duty as guides and guardians of the moral and spiritual life and the whole conception of their office would become degraded but investiture as then practised did involve these consequences for it was made with the ring and staff the emblems of spiritual marriage and authority investiture by these signified the bestowal not merely of the temporalities but of the office itself it meant that the receiver became the absolute vassal in technical feudal language the man of him who thus invested him nor may we fairly blame gregory for the evils which may seem to us to have sprung out of the ordinance of clerical celibacy clerical marriage we must remember was contrary to the sentiment of the age and had long been condemned by the law of the church by canon law it was not marriage at all but mere concubinage and men who had so far done violence to their consciences as to break the law of the church were not very scrupulous in transgressing again and were often unfaithful to their concubines the marriage of the clergy moreover tended not only to secularize them but to form them into a kind of hereditary caste with strong local sympathies weakening the tie between them and rome and thus hindering one of gregory's chief aims which was to organize the whole church on one type under one supreme head in the network of feudalism which covered europe parceling it out amongst a multitude of rulers infinitely graduated in rank and power the unity of the church would have been fatally impaired had there not been a central power to hold it together maintaining everywhere as nearly as possible the same standard of doctrine the same form of worship the same religious customs and moral principles how gregory played the part of such a central power can best be understood by a study of his letters they are addressed to all kinds of persons in all parts of western christendom and are concerned with a vast variety of subjects disputes between bishops and abbots claims of rival candidates for bishoprics rights of metropolitans the protection of monastic property from cupidity and violence questions about marriage within forbidden degrees or the penalties to be exacted for moral offences an unaffected piety an intimate knowledge of scripture a zealous anxiety for the advancement of pure morality are conspicuous in all his letters even a saracen emir is addressed as a friend on the strength of his kindness to some christians and his belief in the one true god kings nobles bishops abbots all who bear rule of any kind are warned to be mindful of their trust and do their duty actuated neither by fear nor by favour neither by love of money nor desire of vain glory 
His tone, however, varies according to the character and condition of the person addressed. To intimate friends, he is tender. To sinners, like Philip I of France, severely stern. To William of England, more than to any other sovereign, he is respectful and even complimentary. Once, indeed, he ventured to ask too much from him. He demanded fealty, as well as more punctual payment of Peter's pence. The strong-willed conqueror taught him not to presume again. Peter's pence he would pay, for his predecessors had paid it. Fealty they had not paid, and it never should be paid by him. Yet to all, whatever their rank and power might be, Gregory writes as a spiritual father who has authority to rebuke, to admonish, to command his children. The close connection between the papacy and all parts of the spiritual empire was further maintained not only by letters and legates, but by the attendance of bishops at the synods in Rome. Neglect to obey citations to these synods was a heinous offence, visited, if too often repeated, with the penalties of suspension or excommunication. Lanfranc did not escape sharp reprimands for remissness in this duty, and the most severe rebuke which Gregory ever dared administer to the conqueror was for hindering some bishops from leaving his dominions to visit Rome. The spiritual father demanded strict obedience from even the greatest of his sons. Thus did Gregory read his commission. It was not the habit of men in that age to look very far ahead and speculate about the remote consequences of their acts. What they believed to be right or good or desirable, this they commonly pursued with simple faith and eagerness. Gregory was no doubt hurried sometimes by excess of zeal into acts of indefensible severity, and sometimes, in moments of perplexity, he stooped to unworthy subterfuges. But his aim was a noble one. He never lost sight of it. By his transcendent genius he came near to attaining it, and left the more complete attainment possible for his successors. Two months after his death, another man hardly less wonderful died, whose career had in many strange ways been linked with his. Robert Guiscard, not easily moved to tears, is said to have wept when he heard of the Pope's death. He was then preparing for a great expedition to Constantinople. Early in July he set sail, sickened with fever on the voyage, was landed in Corfu, and died in the seventieth year of his reign, July 17, 1085. The claim of his son Roger to the dukedom of Apulia was contested by a half-brother, Bohemond, and Gisolf of Salerno tried to regain that principality. The archbishopric of Salerno fell vacant about this time. Ziegelgeita, Robert's widow, tried to get it for a relation of the deceased primate, who was attached to her family, but her design was opposed by Gisolf and the cardinals who had been with Gregory. Ziegelgaita and Roger then broke off their intercourse with the Gregorian party and released all the prisoners who had been brought from Rome. End of section 19